our podcast on our podcast we're trying to basically shine a light on you know the folks around the rock musicians who helped create some of the best rock and roll to ever exist really and in my opinion you're definitely one of those people my man so um this is Bo from the rock savages podcast so um that's pretty much what we do um i also know a lot of people uh that interview you they kind of approach you to pick your brain on the uh the technicality of of your studio work but i kind of want to know more about you on a micro level a macro level rather just kind of just kind of go through your career and i kind of want to talk about some of the records you've worked with because you worked with some of my favorite bands and uh you know records that i've been listening to since i was a kid so i know your uh i know your name very well jack uh i've always wanted to talk to you so i guess here we go um you started uh as a musician first um what were some of your favorite bands in those early years? And well, one of my some of my favorite bands, without a doubt, I'd have to say Led Zeppelin. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'd have to, you know, say that I admire the record making of the Beatles and the innovation of the Beatles. But I was a person who always sort of preferred the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin for for whatever reason. Right. They were more. I guess I just liked it more, and I liked the Doors a lot as well. I have to say, right? Yeah, I like. Uh, uh, I was a I was a Stones guy myself over the Beatles. I mean, of course they're undeniable, but there's something about the Stones that's so I don't know. It's just it's just real, man. It's real. It's just dirtier, you know. I I enjoy the reckless element of it, and right. you know the thing about rock and roll that's interesting is that rock and roll, if you think about it, in hip hop, excuse me, rock and roll and rap and country are the same thing from the perspective that they're all about social commentary. Correct. Essentially. Um, pop and hip hop, it's wallpaper. It comes and goes. There's an emotional commentary to it as well as social, but country, you know, you have to be the real thing to be in the country scene and same thing with the rap, you know, unless unless you're on the street or part of the rap world, you don't even understand the nomenclature. Right. And rock is the same thing. You know, rock is part of a society. You're part of society. You're part of a movement. And that's political, emotionally, socially, spiritually. Uh, I don't get that from pop, again, and hip hop. That's more. It's just wallpaper. I, don't misunderstand me. I, I, there are records that are new that are pop records that I absolutely adore and I love hip hop. I mean, I work in it. I like it all. Something I don't like it. Uh, but there's nothing like pelvic energy. Right. Right. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I guess you're, I guess you're correct on, 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 on rock and roll kind of being a, like almost a spiritual thing, you know? Um, it's interesting how you, how you put that. It's uh, I've never really heard it in that kind of manner before, but it, uh, it's uh, it's very interesting. Are, are you into like any of the, the 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 country reference too? It's like I'm I'm a rock and roll guy, but I've kind of been getting a little bit into some of this country too. Uh, artists like Tyler Childers and like Sturgill Simpson, they're they're taking it from a really old school perspective. They've been working with, uh, well, I know uh, Sturgill's been working with uh, Dave Cobb out there. And uh, they're they're taking like a real old school perspective and kind of getting back to like real meaningful and in real lyrics, you know. And it's you know, if you 
if you think about music at, at large, just as, as a general thing, um, it really is a reflection of what of the pulse of society at the time. Right. And if we consider what's transpiring with, you know, Kenosha, Seattle, uh, COVID, the Democrat versus the Republicans and everything that is, and the list goes on, um, that's only going to make people want to have something that's real because they're understanding how important real is because it's being taken away from them in a sense. They're not living real life. You know, they can't see family members. They can't go places. They can't do things. They're stuck. And when you lose that liberty that you've sort of taken for granted, the liberty and the freedom that this country was found on, and all of a sudden it's taken away from you, you're kind of like, and not because anyone's trying to take it away from you, just because of what's transpired. Right. Um, There, you know, you get a a little bit sober. Don't you get sober? You start realizing what really matters. Right. You're and you're kind of sitting with yourself and kind of really being introspective. And artists are probably doing the same thing. I think you're forced to. Yeah. You're forced to because you're you, you don't have the distractions of life. Stoplights, people talking to you, stores, getting things. You you don't have any distraction. Right. Yeah. It's it's interesting because um, isolation can do weird things to people, but hopefully, I mean, I've had some talks with, uh, some, some different rock and roll bands over the last couple months. And the conversation is kind of turning into the same thing. It's like, will all of this isolation, uh, bring all, all of this renaissance of art and music back into the culture when it opens back up, you know, hopefully that's the case. Well, I think it absolutely will, because uh, again, you know, if you, from a lyrical perspective, Real writers write about their life and what's happening around them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if they do that, it's automatic. Of course it will happen. Right. As long as it's an artist not writing to an algorithm, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, of course. And, and you know, that has its place as well because sure, it just does. But uh, it's all we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Led Zeppelin. I mean, what was it about some of those records that sonically drew you in? Because I was thinking the other day, I was like... Did drums sound that awesome on tape before John Bonham? You know, the the engineering of those records is just still phenomenal to this day. Well, um, it's interesting. I had an experience. I think I've shared this before, but I'll share it with you. Um, I had an experience. You know, I, I made nine albums with a engineer producer named Glenn Johns, who made some of those Led Zeppelin records. Right. And when I did my very first session with him at Ocean Way United at the time. I did a lot, what a lot of us, sometimes we will hire, uh, you know, really great drums in that we know that we like. For instance, there's some people in Hollywood that have uh, loads of drums that they rent out. And I know them. I know them by serial number. I know which ones do what. You know, I know the catalog. Awesome. So I brought some particular Gretsch drums in and some Ludwigs and a few things and Zuzan cymbals and things I thought would be really impressive and sound great. And when Glenn walked in and met me for the first time, he said, what, what's those drums out there? And I explained what I just explained to you. And he looked at me and he said, hmm. do you think I told John Bonham what drums he should use? I didn't. Right. John Bonham got behind the drums and he made the sound. And I just captured it. Right. Yeah. Now, but I'll tell you what I've, I have found that's interesting is that the best drum sounds I've ever been able to attain so far up to this point, all the guys that were really great, that got really great drum sounds are big guys. Q-tip is big. 
Right. John Bonham is big. Not Q-Tip. Excuse me. Questlove. Okay. Questlove is big. John Bonham is big. They were big guys. Jim Kildner is big. And I, I think there's something about not how hard they hit, but the extension of their body, because that's part of the tone. Right. And I think the fact that there's more weight. It's just a theory. I don't have anything to prove it by. It's right. just an observation. But I've always thought that was interesting. Right. And, you know, you could throw Steve Gorman in there, too, which I really want to get into on that one here in a minute. But well, um, there you go. There's <laughs> another big guy. Yeah, and big drums, too, for those sessions. But, uh, yeah, I definitely want to dig into that that whole thing because, uh, you know, that's that's an interesting and amazing story just sonically and and verbally, I'm sure. But, I mean, once you, once you knew that you wanted to be an engineer, because I know you started as a musician and you kind of got into it a little bit by accident, once you, once you want, knew that you wanted to be uh, an engineer or produce as opposed to playing in a band, I mean, what were the next steps to become an apprentice to learn the skill set? You know, it's an interesting thing because that's probably my least favorite question on the planet in terms of how people can acquire or get in the game, let's call it. Right. And unfortunately, the, the, the issue, consistent issue is that it happens every which way you can imagine. Right. Right. Um, and for me, uh, it's a series of events that I would call, you know, there was a percentage of lucky. Right place at the right time. Things just happen. But. If you have the ability, it seems like if you have two things, the ability and the tenacity. If we look at Tiger Woods, he had the tenacity. Now, maybe he was driven by his father and his own internal thing, but he really wanted to be the best golfer ever. And he had tenacity to get there. And right. he had the talent. Got to have the talent. Right. It's the only thing I see in common is a lot of the people who are successful. If you talk to them, you'll find that. This is what they wanted to do. And they want to get their come hell in high water. Right. Right. And it's kind of what it takes because you have to look at this business and doing what we do as the other woman in your life from a male perspective. I'm speaking <laughs> of. Yeah, sure. It's the <laughs> other woman. It's always on your mind. You're always thinking about it. You're obsessed with it. You might go through a few divorces. Women get jealous. Sure. Because you're obsessed. Right. That makes total sense. And, Kind of what it takes. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to get good at anything, and you have to be fearless, and you have to be willing to fail a bunch of times to get to to be good at anything, you know? Yeah, that's a great message right there. Yeah, it's practice, so to speak, you know? And you just keep doing it, you keep doing it. But yeah. the, the, the key thing I think that a lot of people might miss on is intelligence, a large part of intelligence, which is how you get here, get to being great at what you do, is observation. Right. It's a constant observation of what worked and what didn't work and why. Right. And if there's an issue now with the digital, um, where we are right now in this digital revolution, is a lot of things come to you easy, so you don't ask why. Why does this sound like this? How did this get here? And understanding the root of something allows you to manipulate things the best you can. But you have to understand what it is to manipulate it. If that makes sense. It does make sense. I mean, that's how I learn. I'm a visual learner, so I have to I have to watch and learn and apply and fail and then do it again in a different way just to get better at it. So it makes it makes total sense in that manner. Yeah. But you also have to figure out what to believe and what not to believe because there is lots of information that's incorrect. 
it's just incorrect. Sure. Sure. And there's a lot of information out there. So it's, it's hard to like sift through it all. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, when you say things come too easy, I, I agree. Like in this digital age where everything's like kind of, you know, if, it, if it's based on a big hit, it's usually algorithm stuff. And, uh, you know, a lot of drummers, I'm a drummer, so we can, we can talk drums all day, but, uh, <laughs> well, presets, you know, presets, sure. which I'm guilty of creating, by the way. Sure. But you know, well, they have a tool. It's, it's a tool. But I would, I, I would, without a doubt, if someone said, you know, you got to take the digital away, be like, go away. <laughs> Genie's out of the bottle. I love it. It's too many things that are great about it. You know, uh, there's no reason to not use it all. As we know, artists are really just a synthesis of everything before them. Right. Yeah, that is correct. I mean, uh, yeah, they're just emulating their surroundings pretty much and kind of interpreting it in their own way. I mean, well, when, you, when you're a child, what do you do? You, you you look at your parents, you walk like them, you use a lot of the same words, you you learn from them. Same thing. Absolutely, yeah. Have you have you done any? Do you do sessions where there is no, there's there's you know because you're 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 known for your analog your analog studio and your your analog approach. Do you do you ever still record bands or have you ever recorded bands that are completely off the grid that you basically just slapping up the mics, getting the sounds and clicking in and going for it and letting, letting the tempo kind of go up and down and kind of variate based on, on the human interaction in the room. I think the only way to really properly answer that is to understand that there is absolutely no rules. And uh, again, you know, I, I'm working primarily in pro tools. You can't take that away from me. Right. It has nothing to do with analog. I think there's beauty in all of it. There's beautiful beauty in all the decades of recording and there's beauty in all the equipment in recording, old and new. And so I don't really see myself as an analog guy or a digital guy. You know, I've been handed records to mix, for instance, that I'm like, boy, this really sounds great. Where'd you guys do this? How'd you do this? Oh, I did it in my garage with my SM57 in my grandma's garage. I'm like, what? <laughs> and it's amazing. Yeah. So you know it's kind of how it works at the end of the day it's if the song is really fabulous and the playing's really great you don't notice a lot of stuff you know if the balancing if it's balanced right can't fail right that kind of brings me to the next question the the records i've been listening to that you've been a part of like especially when you capture rock and roll it doesn't really like you said doesn't need to be on tape but I was always in awe of how loud and crystal clear your recordings get. Like some of your records, you know, when when recording rock bands are, are is it your intent to be able to crank that recording up and it still be enjoyable, but not loud enough to like ruin the listening experience? Yeah, we call it um, we call it crank factor. Yes, right. It's a combination of crank factor and what I call again what I call crank factor crank. Crank factor. Yeah. And, (laughs) and, and easy on the ear. Right. Right. One of the things that, you know, if there's anything negative to say about what a lot of us have been guilty of in the last decade is how loud can we make it? Sure. The loudness wars that were going on for a while. Right. And nobody wants to back down because the ear hears loud is better in a lot of cases. Uh, But, you know, you want to feel the record. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you want to be able to, you want that bass drum to 
kicked through your chest, you know? At least I do. You want to feel it. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, especially in the rock and roll realm, you know, um, you've worked with one of my favorite bands. You've worked with several of my favorite bands, actually, but the Black Crows being one of them. I mean, uh, I listened to a lot of your interviews, and it seems like we never get in-depth into the recording of Amorica and, and Three Snakes and One Charm. I haven't heard too much of the details on from your end. I would love to hear more about that because they're one of my favorite bands. I've been listening to Amorica. I was a first-day buyer of that record. And uh, it's just sonically perfect to me. I mean, how were you approached to be a part of that project, and who whose idea was it to record it at, at Sound City? Uh, well, um, I definitely wanted to record at Sound City because at the time, it was possibly one of the best sounding rooms, and also had a great recording console. Yeah, um, and that console was very unique in that. When I look back on it now, I realized it had something I never saw anywhere else, which was peak meters. So what that did is it made you record at a different level than you normally would. Um, and that's a large part, I think, of the sound of that, of this, how it worked. Really? Now, yeah. obviously, obviously, Grohl's got the console now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which was a good move. That, well, absolutely. And, and the truth of the matter is the console and the room work together. To, separately, sure. that's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. Right. together and had something it was a perfect marriage have you had the opportunity it a, to it is a magic it is definitely a magic board no question have you had the opportunity to go to uh his studio 606 and and try it in that room yet or not not yet uh but i am talking to his manager about a few ideas awesome yeah that'll be great because i'm I, that room i apparently it sounds really good too so um that'd be interesting for sure well in my opinion he's our john bonham of our era yeah. He's the closest I will ever get to John Bonham, ever. Yeah. I mean, Grohl is an amazing drummer. You know, he's amazing everything, but I mean, you know. Drum. There's a record I was mixing. I was mixing a record for a, a producer who worked on the Monkey Wrench. So what record would that have been? Did I say that right? Was it Monkey Wrench? That's the song, right? I think that's his first record. First or second. I think his second Color, or, color and Sound or something. Color and the Shape? Color. Yeah. Color and the Shape. Right. And I was mixing another record that he had, he actually had made that record with Grohl. And he was telling me one of my favorite stories ever was that while they were record, mixing the record, he said to Grohl, you know, and Grohl looked at him and they go, you know, I don't think these drums are right. Mm-hmm. And Grohl just turned to the assistant and he said, set up the drums in the outside real quick. He played that song in one take. That was it. Done. Well, I, that doesn't surprise me at all. I'm sure he does a lot of one takes. Just you he's know. a monster. He's he just oh my god. And he, and as a person, beyond fabulous. Yeah, he seems like a really cool dude. I I saw the Foo Fighters once, and they opened up for the Chili Peppers. But all he did, like I think half the set, he played like old Van Halen covers, which was it was just amazing. You know, <laughs> it was just so fun and cool. It's like, yeah, you know, we've heard the Foo Fighters songs. I want to hear Dave Kroll do, you know, David Lee Roth for like six songs in a row. It was pretty <laughs> awesome. <laughs> but, yeah. but getting back to the Crows, during that session, um, I mean, a lot of those songs had already been recorded during the band's tall sessions. Um, how did you v- view those developed songs and navigate the Robinsons to take a slightly different approach with it? Because the, the original versions were like pretty grandiose. They had like horns and things like that. It seemed that when you re-recorded Amor- the Amorica songs that had appeared on Tall, well, it was, it was unreleased at the time, but 
they had they had more stripped down and you, you kind of got them to get down to their original intent of them. How did you they... know they've had the they've had the success of the first record, right? It's right. the same thing as as John Mayer having the success of his first record, or the success of any band that has what I call a successful freshman record. Right. If you have a really huge successful freshman record, the next one, which is a sophomore record, is the hardest record to make. Uh, a lot of people have ideas of what they think it should be or what it should be, what they're expecting, high level of what they are expecting it to be, a lot of pressure. And I think it's a combination of all of that with the additional combination of the record label thinking, oh, my God, well, you just made that huge record. You must have the magic dust. Do what you want. And that's the worst thing you can do because then they'll just go off somewhere. Right. Which and, is, they're notorious for which is happens a lot with artists, you know, they, and I think that that had happened with them. And when we got to America, it was, they were looking to me of like, okay, help us frame this in, like help us pull this together. Right. And I think we were just a good match. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't want to take any big credit or say I'm a genius and they're no, I mean, they were very, they're extremely talented. Yeah. Uh, I just helped it. Right. But I would never, I would never say, and the genius of the record, absolutely not. Yeah, right. I mean, the, you know, the the Robinson songwriting is just—it's really undeniable. I mean, even even their solo stuff. I mean, Rich's solo stuff is is amazing too. I've I got to meet him a couple times, and he was—I I saw him do a studio session up in in New York, uh, up at uh, Applehead Studios, right next to Levon Helms' place, and it was it was next level. You could just see like this guy was just tapped into to, to creating. And I'm sure him and the crows, it was just a, a different level, you know, a more of an ensemble kind of thing. I think what also allowed us to make that kind of a record is that we had the time, money and patience. Right. And so therefore a lot of time was spent. You know, there was a choice of 35 different kinds of guitars to try. <laughs> Right. Different kinds of amplifiers, different kinds of microphones. We just we didn't stop until it was like that's really great. Right, and that's and, per and that was per song, right? Did you just take one song at song. a time? Yeah, per song. Did you and do, you do something different? That. You can't do that now. That cannot be done now. Really? Why not? You don't have that. You don't have that luxury. Just the, there's no time or no budget to do it. Well, there's not that kind of money. I mean, the good news is right. that the business is coming around to be very strong now. That streaming has become just a normal thing for everybody and everywhere. Right. So that means that the rights holders and record companies are definitely raking the money really great right now. And so I think that now will start to be passed on to artists. So I think we'll see some of that come back. Yeah, that'd be great. But it's also just the mentality, you know, the black crows come from that older school. And so they don't have a problem rolling up their shirts their shirt sleeves and, and going for it, digging in. Right. That's a different kind of mindset. Yeah. It is. And that's what it takes. That's what it takes. Yeah. You also did their fourth album, three snakes and one charm, which seemed to be yeah. quite a different experience, you know, cause they did that in Atlanta at some farmhouse, right? Did, how did, how did the logistics of that work? Did you have to like ship all of your analog gear out there or did you guys just rent gear? How'd that, how that situation sort of, I've up? always had all, I have all my gear in ample cases. And all my gear has been everywhere from, you know, France to Seattle to wherever. So when we did that record in Atlanta, 
uh, to ship all my stuff, which was quite a bit of stuff. And I rented a few things locally. But it was um, also at the time, it was the cool thing was when people were wanting to make records in residence, residence areas as opposed to the commercial studio. Right. It was just like a, a fad in a sense at the time. Sure. Right. So that's what we did. And everyone kind of lived together and ate together. And the most fun we had in that session is when they decided they were going to drop acid on <laughs> New Year's. And I made a New, Year, New Year's session with them on acid. That was a blast. Do you remember what song it was? <laughs> uh, it wasn't one song. I took pieces like a bridge or a verse or a second verse, whatever, cut them into some of the songs. Okay. Because what I did is I made crazy instruments. I thought of what could I do to any instrument to make it as out as possible. And I did that. I can't imagine what it was like in their headphones. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Jeez. And they brought uh they brought some horns in for that and just kind of got really freaky with it, right? I mean that the the results of those sessions, although as chaotic as the, you know, some of the stories sound, I mean they're they came out just brilliant, you know. I mean it's, they were chaotic. They were chaotic. I mean, it's a different time. They the black crows were the black crows. I mean, they were doing all the things you think of when you think of rock and roll. That was all going down. And it was fun. Yeah, it's it's still fun. I'm glad they're back together, and hopefully they'll be doing some cool stuff. I, I hear they're going back to uh, George Draculius for the new uh, the new material. So we'll see how that goes. Awesome. Great. Yeah. I mean, you've done other great records. You know, you did Clutches, Elephant Riders. They're one of my favorite bands, too. And you, you talk about John Bonham. Man, J.P. Gaster might be really close, too, you know, right up there with yes, Dave Grohl. He's he's yeah. he, he's a monster, man. I mean, we had him on this podcast, and he couldn't have been a nicer guy. But he is so technical, and he just gets down to the drums. I mean, he speaks the language of the drums. You know, he he practices like three hours a day before the show. He's one of those guys. How was that? How was working with them in the studio? I know you just did some mixing for them, correct? They were great, absolutely great. I mean, it's funny, you know, not a lot of people talk about them. Oh man. They're and bigger. I don't know why. They're bigger than they've ever been. You know, they just went out on their own, started their own record label, and then just exploded. So they're, I mean, they're headlining Red Rocks and stuff now. They're they're fantastic, but they're very cultish. You know, their their fan base is very, uh, it's very uh, insular, I guess, in a way. But it's pretty cool. You know, they're they're, they're very here. devoted devoted fans. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, another great great drummer, very Bonham esh. You know. Um, Nobody can take that man's place, but uh, there's some good ones out there, man. I mean, do you record? Do you enjoy recording uh, rock music the most, or or does the genre not really matter? You just kind of get into the headspace of whatever you're doing. I I like recording great songs. Right, just, it's just that simple, honestly and truly. Yeah, I'm working with uh, an artist now, a band now from Kenosha, and in fact, one of the songs is about what happened in Kenosha, and um. You know, it's not like other things I, I get to always work on, but it's it just has great songs. And when the songs are really great, I'm a sucker for it. You know, I listen to the lyrics first, melody second. Right. And the rest. But if the lyrics don't touch me, if I don't feel like I, can, I understand what they're trying to say, I don't think I should do it because I'll do it to justice. I won't do a good job. Right. I mean, I guess that's why all of us are having this conversation is, is it comes down to the song. Like I was having a conversation with a friend not too long ago. 
And he was talking about all these young kids that are on YouTube and they're just shredders and these the amazing technical drummers and guitar players and stuff. I was like, yeah, but dude, are they writing songs, man? That's what, that's really the only thing that matters. I mean, these kids are probably just going to go off and go to college, most of them, and just have that ability, but they're never going to apply it to songwriting. And that, that my, that's, that's what my whole point was. It's like, if the song's not there, then it's not interesting. And you're, you're hundred percent right on that. I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? Is communicating right. about, again, emotional or psychological, or spiritual commentary. Right. And I think the way so you record doing... is it just, it translates. It's perfect. I'm glad you feel that way. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. You, you, you have also assumed the role as A&R for record labels. Are you still currently doing that? And do you enjoy that side of the business? I, I had a real romantic view of what I thought it would be based on a lot of my relationships with A&R executives that come in and out of the studio. But I discovered that once you get actually inside it, and therefore you are like one of them, we'll call it, um, I didn't like some of the things I saw. That's unfortunate. Um, and that's because, you know, I've spent my whole life blocking for artists. Right. And uh, I didn't feel like they always blocked for the artists. Right. That, 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 that really seems to be the case. I, I recently spoke uh, to Blasco from uh, Ozzy Osbourne's band. He's the bass player for Ozzy. And uh, he has also taken on a job as an A&R executive for a small rock label. And we had a great conversation about, about him taking a more old school approach to signing bands and giving them a chance to develop, you know, which I think is largely absent in the mainstream music uh, industry right now. At least that's what it seems like. And it, it, I mean, that old school mentality doesn't really seem like a standard practice these days among a lot of the major labels. I mean, when signing a band, was that also your approach or it, it, they just weren't jiving with that? So that you had, no, to... I don't think you can blame the labels from the standpoint that when wall street bought the labels and wall street got involved, they don't understand. They just know like, okay, here, what is your bottom line? What did you bring in? What did you spend? And a lot of those people are, they're just not artistic people. I mean, they right. don't appreciate the art. So to be, to be fair to labels, you know, if you go harking all the way back to, say, A&M in the day when it was owned by Herb Arbert, um and Jerry Moss, you know, these were independent, true um, entrepreneurs, you know, that, I mean, the famous thing about them is they used to tell people, we're going to sign you for five records firm. Right. And we'll see you on the third record. And the artist would be like, well, what are you talking about? You just signed me. Yeah, I know. We'll take two records for you to figure it out. We'll see you on the third one. Right. And if you think about what that did to an artist's head, like, you mean I have five records? I don't have to worry about my rent. I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to worry. I can just create for quite a while and not right. worry about feeding myself or my friends or whatever it might be, depending on the situation. Right. That's, that is freedom to creativity. Absolutely. We don't have that now. You know, if you don't have your second or third single working or if the fad changes or whatever, there's a million reasons why you may not be able to complete your dream. Right. And sometimes it takes a while to figure out, figuring out. So I don't really want to paint the labels being bad. I think they just got in trouble when they didn't control the checkbook the same way. 
Right. It's, you know, it seems kind of, it seemed to be kind of like an instantaneous business model, you know, like you were saying, it's the, well, there was a lot of money, you know, when we went sure. to, when we switched to compact disc, the deals didn't change. So the profit was through the roof and yeah. they just were raking the money and the wall street was like, I want some of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's just yeah. that simple. Yeah. It's kind of the game of the whole world. It seems these days, you know? Yeah, I mean, I remember when these labels started off, It were they were bought and, and run by, you know, people that were independently wealthy or, or someone knew them was independently wealthy. And it was, in some ways, almost a hobby. Right. And then it grew into a monster. Have you thought, because you seem kind of be, to be the perfect person to do this because you've had experience doing it. Have you thought about starting your own label? Because you have your own studio and you have the experience of the A&R kind of vibe. But you could do it in your own way. Have you ever thought about just doing a, like an, a small independent label and just kind of going for it? And... Uh, I, I have it because I kind of have my fingers in a lot of different things at the moment besides record making. Oh, really? And yeah. yeah and, and I think there's a few things that need to be that I can help uh, that are important. And to make it very simple and easy, I'm spending some time with some of the consumer electronic companies because we are consuming the content. Um, not, you know, nobody has big speakers in their house and a big stereo. They don't even know what that is. Right. And it's a shame because that means that the, the communication of the artist is actually not reaching the listener because it's dumbed down by the fact that the systems can't play the sound properly. And sound and audio only really matters because it's a conduit between my heart and your heart. And right. how big that conduit is, is how, how great I can get the emotion and the feeling for you to feel. And, and that's the bummer that if you think about it. Um, you know, 73% of content is consumed on a cell phone. Yeah. Need I say, don't need to say more. Right. So I mean, if you, you pick up your cell phone, you're going to tell me you can hear the difference between 26 inch and a, you know, 20 inch bass drum, whether it's got two heads or one heads or a plastic, you know, or right. a wood beater, you can't tell. Yeah, it's tough. It's a click. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, are you a vinyl guy? Because, um, you know, you kind of seem like you are. <laughs> uh, I like vinyl, but, I, you know, again, I the thing about the modern tools is they do things that the old tools don't do. And yeah. to put it simple. Right. You know, like bass, for instance, as an example, because of the way electronics are, when I talk about electronics, I mean the solid state digital, uh, its ability to go from zero to 100 miles an hour is in nanoseconds. It has a very fast rise time. Right. So therefore, it's very punchy and very aggressive. Right. The the, the more warmer, tubey, analogy, early stuff, um, is it's slower, but it's beautiful and it's warm and it hugs you. And there's no reason why we can't do a combination of all that. Right. There's no reason why, because some of the things that we like about the older records is the 3D element, you know, the, the actual, right. where you can hear inside the record, you, you can go inside it. Right. It, and it, instead of being like killed or by a wall of sound. Right. So neither one, neither one, I, I think they're both good in different ways, if you know what I mean. So you're helping them to kind of develop a technology that's going to 
just going to round out the recordings a little more? Uh, I'm hoping them. uh, It starts with making them realize that it matters. You know, right. They don't really care about sound. What they care about is, you know, will my phone or my laptop or whatever it is, whatever device, can I go to Germany and back on one battery charge? Is it light? Is the screen beautiful? Is it look cool like an iPhone? Is it, is it this? Is it that? And meanwhile, you're like, uh, it's a communication device. Yeah. You're not paying attention to the sound. Right. And it takes people like me to keep challenging them to make better sounding devices and help them make them sound better. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the best thing you can possibly do. Did you ever, what was that thing Neil Young was doing a few years ago? It kind of disappeared. I think it was called. The problem with that was it was too, too. The thing about consumer, like look, every business has something that's the Holy grail. And in consumer consumer electronics, the Holy grail is plug and play. You just plug it in and it works. Right. And when the pro people, the people on our side of the business try to get involved, they try to put too many bells and whistles and too many things. And you got to plug this into this and then plug this in here. And it does this. It's like, no, nobody has time for that. Jeez. It has to be immediate and simple and easy, like an app. Right. That's why Apple is successful. You pick up the phone. You don't think about it. You turn it on. There's a picture or something. You push it. And you don't even think about what's happening in the background. But it's just happening. And it's done. Um, that's the problem with when the pro people get involved. I wish there's, there's, there seems to be like a small movement in the country to like, people are kind of trying to unplug a little more. And I think that's kind of where the vinyl resurgence is coming from. It's like, yeah, maybe you should just kind of mellow out a little bit, kind of unplug and then just get into whatever it is, be it music or whatever. And just be, yeah, but the thing is that that, that, that doesn't, it doesn't matter what you do with all that. It doesn't translate. Right. And here's another to keep in mind. Another keep in mind is that the very, very root definition of art is ever changing. That's true. There's no such thing of how it used to be or that was great. That's not the right way to look at it. Oh, that's boring. Art grows and changes. And you move with it. And you create it. And hopefully you're a few steps ahead of it. And that's the beauty of it, is that it's creation, and we don't know what's around the corner. But we're, we're looking to see what's around them. We want to go around that corner. And that's the beauty. The other stuff's already been done. Sure. You don't want to do the same thing. You want to do something different. You want to take it to a new height. It's that journey and the white light and what you're trying to get. And that, you know, Could it be this? Could I do this? Could I get that? That's what's exciting, just like life. Sure. That's a, that's a great way of looking at it, man. I mean, uh, yeah, it puts a, it's a, it puts a positive aspect on change, which is happening whether you like it or not. So you kind of got to roll with it or you're going to get rolled over. So yeah, you're right. It, 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 that's the exciting part is like expression. Who knows what it is, but people need to follow a muse and we don't know what that looks like to an ninja. No, but individual. that's human nature. We, sure. we like things. That are, we don't want to go to the same place every time getting the same thing. We, we do it. Sure. Absolutely. Right. I mean, there's your basic thing of genes. Everyone likes genes and that seems to stay through yeah. every decade. The word, the one word that never seems to go away in any generation anywhere is the word cool. Right. For whatever reason, it doesn't change. Just right? what, what it is changes, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Know? It's a really interesting thing because people like, oh, that's lit. 
right? Right. Well, that's, I don't know what to pick, you know, whatever new kind of yeah. pop culture words. But, Who knows but you know what? There. In the middle of all that, there'll be a sentence that has a word cool in it. Sure. Yeah, it's a universal meaning. Right. It's wow. fascinating. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. That's awesome. And what I like about the word cool, which translates into what we do, is if you stop and think about it, cool can be different things. You could say, like, that is really cool. Or you could say, dude, that's not cool. Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of intuition, too. It's like, you know, what makes it cool? What, what makes and it that cool? relates to what it relates to what we do, because what we do is turns the emotion and what we do rides on the on the on the tone. The tone is the carrier. It, we multiplex on top of the tone. You know, whether it's a country record or rock record or pop record, that tone is what resonates with us as humans. Like the word cool, the way I just described all the different ways you can say cool. Same word. Okay. But totally different meaning. And the only thing that's different is the tone. Right. Okay. That's great. That's great stuff, man. Speaking of cool, I mean, what kind of stuff are you listening to these days? I mean, is it, what, you know, is it some different things i mean what, what what are you working on what do you have any projects coming out soon that we can uh help plug here <laughs> i would never do that never, i don't think that's right but, oh it's 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 uh, yeah if it's a but I, no i am working on i'm working on well it's funny i should, i talked about country because the band i'm working on they've been working on for a year and a half you know mixing different songs for them i think we're gonna have a third number one and we've already had We've already had two ones and two top fives, and I think we're under our third number one. So, wow, that's four top fours, a five. That's just you know pretty unheard of. Um, they're very very talented, and uh, another band called Daisy that I'm working with, and then this other band I just told you about that's uh, from Kenosha. Okay, it's a guy named Rob Cavallo, and I have done a lot of work together. Rob and Cavallo and I are working with this band, and I think the songs are like beyond tremendous. Um, and I'm spending a lot of time on it. Another big artist, so you know, we all know. And as far as what I'm listening to, it's a little bit of everything. Yeah. Uh, I just I just like songs. I really do. I know it sounds kind of lame, but it, no, it's true. No, no, no. It's totally, that's not lame at all. I, I have that conversation with people all the time. So I c totally relate. And I really enjoyed this conversation, Jack. I appreciate your time talking with me. Shed some light on some things, and uh, I enjoy your records, and I always will, and I'll always keep an eye out. And uh, if you ever need any, uh, any any more conversation as far as what you're working on, and want to, uh, you know, blow something up, let me know. We'll uh, we'll talk again soon. All right, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Take it no easy problem. out there. Bye bye. Bye bye.